The NFL has been hit with the bubonic plague of injuries. Okay, I don't know if it's that bad, Sam. I, I'll agree it's bad. I'll give you that. I don't know if it's bubonic plague level, though. I don't know. This is On The Rise Podcast, Season 2. Listen now on all major platforms, as well as midtownradio.ca, weekends at 10 a.m. Welcome your host, Sam Donzik and Evan Brown. Welcome to episode 14 of the On The Rise Podcast. It's hot out of the oven. The NFL teams have, have been hit with the newest plague of injuries, as I know you disagree with, but I still think it is. As 16-plus players are out... Uh, most ACLs in one weekend. So obviously, this point is being brought up by many people. Clearly, it's because of the lack of preseason, the lack of offseason that teams are having, of why these injuries are programming. So what has what should have the NFL have done differently? To, and honestly, I understand why they wanted to cancel the preseason because they didn't want to have these issues. But as of right now, there haven't been too many positive cases. So I don't understand possibly why they... like I. It can make sense why they possibly canceled the preseason, but clearly canceling the preseason has now injured and hurt many teams um, as well. Yeah, so there were seven. Uh, you were saying you mentioned the ACL. There was seven confirmed torn ACL injuries in week two alone. Most notably, obviously, Saquon Barkley for the Giants, who got hit pretty bad. That's yep. a big loss for them, and uh, Nick Bosa as well. And I think it was uh, Solomon Tho- Solomon Thomas was as well from the 49ers. Also yes, got tore his yes, ACL. Yes, yes, I did see that as well. So th- clearly, this is. Torn ACLs as well are not injuries to shake a stick at either. Those are bad injuries that yeah. can re- that those take a long time to recover because that is a very important ligament in your leg and it requires a lot of time to repair that, build the strength back up. It requires a lot of uh, requires a lot of physiotherapy and stuff like that. So that is tough injuries and the fact that there was seven in one week alone, I mean. We could have, like, we might have even expected to see this week one, but I think week one people were just kind of, like, taking a bit. Like, there were still many injuries week one, but that yeah. it was almost like normal football amount of injuries. Because of, mm-hmm. But then as we see people get into the reps, uh, or teams get into the reps again, and we see uh, teams having a lot more practices, a lot more, um, obviously, week two, you get that second game in. Um, it's a lot, like, the obviously, injury chances go up. And the fact that we had... Uh, so many ACL injuries in specific, um, but as well as all the other injuries, it has to be, in my opinion, because of the preseason, uh, uh, like you said. And we saw this with the same with the MLB. Like there was such a short amount of time for pitchers to get ready. They were off for three months, I think, because they ended just a bit before, uh, or they just they ended spring training, obviously in March. So that they were maybe off for like three or four months before yeah. they eventually got to back to training camps. But for pitchers, they went from throwing nothing to trying to throw as quickly as possible, and it just mm-hmm. doesn't work. There's a reason pitchers and catchers go back early. It's because pitchers have to take more time to get their arms warmed up. There's a reason. 100%. There's a reason spring training takes so long. It's because many pitchers are used to at least slowly amp up their amount of pitches thrown. So when you're throwing pitchers and football players in both sports in right away, it takes a while to get warmed up, and it takes a while for the body to get used to doing the strenuous jobs and duties that you have to do every single game. Pitchers, we saw so many different guys go down with elbow injuries, shoulder injuries, uh, Verlander and Ken Giles most notably going down for um, uh, Tommy John surgery already, mm-hmm. and then Mike Soroka tore his ACL early on. There was uh, so many different pitcher injuries because it takes a long time for their bodies to get adjusted. And it takes their, a long time for their bodies to get back to game ready. But throwing them back in game action, it's so susceptible to injuries. With football, it's the exact same thing. You get hit hard. It's hard for your body to get used to that alone uh, without any sort of prep time. But their prep time 
got ta- or sorry, with prep time, it still hurts very badly mm-hmm. when you get hit in football. But without any now, your body's just not used to those impacts. It's not used to the quick movements of football, with whether it be running a route or if you're trying to, uh, like obviously cornerbacks following that route and trying to shut down the def- uh, shut down the offense. There's so many different aspects of football, so many different moving parts, and it's. It's tough for the NFL because I see what they were doing, uh, trying to shorten the preseason as much as possible. Yeah, be, be, they wanted they wanted to be as cautious as possible, and I can understand. But to some point as well, you have to look at the players and see. Now the NFL is saying like, obviously with these amount of players, like the sixteen players roughly this week, and then the X number of players we lost last week. Um, with the number of players, like obviously the notable players, Saquon Barkley, Nick Bosa, one of them as well was, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is week to week, but like that was another big loss for the 49ers. Mm-hmm. Like the 49ers injury were, was just massive. Like it was yes, like, they had a lot. It injuries. was like eight or nine players. It was like half of like the, t- it was like half of the number of uh, injuries that were like in County and stuff like that from week two. But I think the biggest, th- the biggest point that we have to bring out is that like, uh, like you said, is like being a player in the national football, like it's physical. It's like, mm-hmm. and I think the biggest point is it's like from coming from week one, there wasn't so many because I think there was that shortened training camp. So, you know, you had some reps there, but they weren't really going full on contact. And oh, because, well, yeah. And you don't want to be too close to the guy because, you know, COVID, everything like that. You can't like not saying like obviously you're not going to tackle the guy, but like you don't want to get too close to him. You want to be easy and stuff like that. But then when you get into that first week, it's like, OK, you're going to probably take it easy. But then now that things are starting to build up, teams are getting used to it. Teams are getting into the reps of daily practice. Their bodies are now starting to get used to it, but their bodies are like not used to because they're like they probably were like 50 percent week one. And now they're like, OK, let's bump bumped up to like 75 to 85 percent. 100% now and the bodies their bodies just aren't ready for it no. like with their legs aren't ready their upper bodies their shoulders just not ready for the amount of contact that football is and I think that's why we're seeing so many injuries that are happening and yeah I, I think honestly the NFL is to blame for that which is it's tough to say that because injuries are just freak accidents most of the time like there's yeah, nothing you can do not, about it yeah it's not usually the NFL's fault like why no, a player gets injured but in my opinion it has to be at least somewhat on the NFL because Yes, I know you were trying to be safe uh, with taking away as much preseason as possible. And, it okay, it did make sense because of, like, there was obviously some cases, people coming in uh, to their supposed bubble, which is not really a bubble because they're traveling and still, for some reason, having fans. Um, but the NFL is, like putting a lot of pressure on them they put a lot of pressure on the players to be ready for the uh, for when week two mm-hmm. uh, week one week two hits and they got rid of all the preseason they didn't have time to prepare for in-game action and when you don't have a time for that your body isn't used to it like we said and it football takes a toll on you it takes a toll on you there's so many different quick movements there's so many different muscles you're using so many different ligaments so many so many different strenuous parts uh, so many different aspects of your body that are being used and put in strenuous pressure and mm-hmm. that's probably that's why we saw so many torrent acls in my opinion because like a guy like saquon barkley who is usually a very fast uh fast player on offense and moves all around the field whether who's generally like, healthy as well who's generally healthy and i mean as soon as you see a guy who moves quick like obviously a bunch of different juke moves there's so many different quick movements in football like it's not surprising that there was sort of an like or that there was such a strain on the ACL and that's why it ended up tearing in my opinion but that's because he's not used to doing that like every single week right he's not used to having to make quick decisions make split second moves to try to get around defenders he wasn't used to that because he was in practice against teammates who weren't putting in a ton of effort to try to tackle him or something like that right so in my opinion that like 
for like using him as an example, there's so many different ways that a football player can tear some sort of ACL, MCL, LCL, whichever. And it's that's why we saw so many injuries, in my opinion, is because they never had any time to like prepare anything like that. So it has to be on the NFL, in my opinion. You need preseason games, and it's not just as like a warm-up to get people excited for the season. It's a warm-up for the players. They need it to prepare, and they need it to get their bodies healthy and ready for when the strenuous season comes. And I, in my opinion, it's on the NFL 100% to have not have preseason and... like it's their fault in my opinion i I know it's hard to say that and hard to put like full blame on them because it's obviously they didn't cause the injuries but th- most of the injuries are to blame on them for not giving them the proper time to prepare in my opinion yeah no, i would agree and i think the biggest thing that we see in preseason as well over the nas of the past number of years is that usually in a preseason either between weeks one and four there usually are some preseason injuries now what's happened is because the preseason, like obviously you see, okay, like the, oh, this guy's like out like, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And it's like, okay, you know, he's out four weeks and that's like week one. So he'll, he'll be out like one, two, three. He'll be like, he, he'll be back like week two of the regular season. But now because there is no preseason, a guy that is now out five weeks is out five weeks of the regular season, not just, you know, three weeks of the preseason, two weeks of the regular season now. It's now it's now only into the regular season, which is going to affect team seasons. And I honestly think that now I got a question for you, sort of, is that if the injury toll continues to go up, like increasingly amount over the next few weeks, obviously the NFL can't really do anything because it's in the past. They can't really, but I think the NFL should in some way try to bet, like try to hopefully the players get used to it more and maybe there's less injuries. I don't know. Maybe this weekend was just a really spike in like a spike in injuries. But we'll hopefully, hopefully we'll see a slowdown. I don't know think that's going to happen or not. But I, I honestly don't see it happening. I think this is going to be because we've seen it. The MLB was almost like a precursor to this. We've seen so many different pitchers go down throughout the year because even if they were like some of the most prepared pitchers um, aren't going to be ready for the long season ahead, right? Like you can be fine for the first couple of weeks because say, um, say your starts aren't like you're not getting too deep into games anyways, you're getting taken out really early, mm-hmm. then you can't really do anything about that. But then as you slowly get into the season, then your star- arm starts to get more tired and then it has more strain on it. And then mm-hmm. the problem with that is coaches are expecting more pitches out of you. And if your arm is more tired, it already can't go that far and then you're pushing it pushing it to the limits that it can and then you're once you get past that limit then uh, if you're injured it's much you're higher you're much more susceptible to injury that yeah. way if you push that limit and with football players it's very easily easy for them to push that limit because of all the different movements all the different quick actions all the split decision uh, split second decisions so in my mind we won't see a bit of a slowdown, which sucks to hear for the players because the, a lot of these injuries, like the torn ACLs, are very major ones and will take a while to hear and can uh, while to heal and can really affect a player's career. But because like because they weren't prepared, there's nothing they can really do. It's just honestly, it's tough for coaches to say this, but you might have to tell your players to take it easy. You have to tell them that they can't put too much strain on their bodies they can't force themselves into extreme situations because it's so much more likely that they're going to get injured mm-hmm. in a season like this and as a coach you have to be wary of that and I think coaches are going to have to start to tell their players like listen I know you want to go 100% right now and I know you want to put everything onto the field but you just can't do that we need you for the rest of the season it's a, you have to keep using it as almost warm-up and then hopefully we can make it to the playoffs and then you can turn it on once you've played 
16 straight weeks or something like that or wh- uh, obviously not 16 straight because bye weeks or whatever but yeah. 15, my point 15 is, games or no i think this year because of oh i think actually i think i think they might be playing 16 games actually i, I can't remember if they, if they i think if, they might have yeah, added I think one they, i think they did add one they did add one extra game this year so I they will so. probably i don't know if that's going to change or not because of the injuries but we'll see. Mm, anyway, we'll see we'll see this wraps up this segment of hot out of the oven regarding the nfl team being hit with a number of injuries including 16 plus and seven torn acls Moving on over into Divine Debates. Today's Divine Debate is should Leon Dreisaitl have one MVP over Nathan McKinnon? In my mind, yes, 100%. Or, or sorry, no. No, no. no. <laughs> sorry, no. No, I mixed it up. Nathan McKinnon should have won. Yes, Nathan McKinnon should have. Uh, That's on the record, everybody. Just so everybody knows, Evan is not in. Like, no. Th- he thinks Nathan McKinnon should have won. Leon, Nathan McKinnon should have won MVP. Leon Dreisaitl should not have won MVP. He's not the most valuable player. And. To me, Leon Dreisaitl, yes, he had most points in the league, and yes, he did get most votes, but in my opinion, those votes were wrong. Leon Dreisaitl, like I said, had most points in the league. Great. You win the Art Ross Trophy for having most points in the league. That's its own award separate. You have most points in the league. Great. Good job. You win your Art Ross. That does not translate over into the MVP conversation in my mind. Yes, you have the most amount of points, but that's not most value to your team. And that's why it's so tough for a, like, in any in any sport, the MVP is such a tough award because a lot of people just immediately go to, okay, highest points or highest points per game or whichever, it's automatically them because they're the best player. But that's not how the award works. Mm-hmm. MVP is most valuable player to their team. The NHL even has an award specifically voted on by the players for who is the best player in the league. And I can't remember the name of it, but Leon Dreisaitl did, I think it's... Uh, most the Maurice Richard rocket is most goals, right? Yes, Mar- the the rocket is it Richard. The, the Calder Trophy? No, Calder is rookie. Calder is rookie. Um, I think it's Bill Masterton. That's what it is. The Bill, Bill Ma- Masterton for just best overall player. Yes, and that's voted on by the players. Mm-hmm. So the players vote on who is the best player overall, and Leon Dreisaitl was voted by the players for that, and so that is its own award. Art Ross is its own award. And those are two separate things. You have to separate that from the MVP conversation in my mind. Nathan McKinnon, on the other hand, was most valuable player to his team. The Colorado Avalanche had so many injuries this year. Callum McCarr, yes, was a surprise as a rookie. He did great. and He won Rookie of the Year as well. Yes, he he deserved Rookie of the Year. But the Colorado Avalanche wouldn't have made it as far as they did without the play of Nathan McKinnon. He had an excellent season. And... There was a lot of talk. Uh, there was a lot of talk on Twitter specifically because um, Don Lecision, a, a re- uh, writer for the NHL Athletic, um, the incredible sports uh, sports magazine, which everybody should go check out. I'm a subscriber. It's an amazing, amazing uh, app slash website slash writing yep. facilitator. Um, Don Lecision pointed out the fact that because he was one of the votes uh, for the NHL, and he said. Uh, I mean, most of the time the voters aren't supposed to reveal their ballots, but he said specifically, and he backed up his statement that Leon Dreisaitl wasn't in his top five, in my opi- uh, uh, in his opinion, in his and top I, five of votes and stuff like that. And, he, and, like, yeah. he didn't think he was a top five in the MVP conversation, and he didn't think uh, Connor McDavid was either. And in my opinion, that is a I 100% agree with that because Leon Dreisaitl, um, his point was was the fact that Leon Dreisaitl is A, paired with Nathan McKinnon. So he wasn't most... V- yes, he could have been most valuable. You mean, you mean Connor McDavid, actually? What did I say? You said you said Leon Dreisaitl was paired with Nathan McKinnon, which is not true. Oh, sorry. Yes, I meant Connor McDavid. Yeah. He is paired with Connor McDavid, and they are the most valuable players to their team because without them, they wouldn't have been on... on like 
they wouldn't oh, have yeah. been the, anywhere. Those two teams are the backbone of the of of the Oilers, and I yes. and I would Dry, definitely agree with you. and McKinnon, uh, McDavid, holy, um, <laughs> are the backbone of the Oilers, and if you take one off the team, in my opinion, they still do just as well. I think they are both like. If you take one off the team and still have the other, I think it's still a playoff team. But that's not how, so. That's not how MVP works. MVP is if you take them off that team, they're nowhere, right? Like they pushed them towards the finals. They made them. They made the players around them and made the team better because of them. And that, in my opinion, that's what Nathan McKinnon did. And his other argument for Leon Draisaitl was the fact that MVP is obviously most valuable player and yes Dreisaitl did have the most points but defensively all season long he was horrible for the Oilers he was not on the PK or anything like that he didn't back check very well he wasn't uh, guarding his man very well on on the defensive end so he was he was focused more about just scoring goals and looking exactly nice. exactly he was he was more worried about the points and more worried about the goals and got a lot more power play time but in essence he wasn't their best player Connor McDavid was their best player in my opinion because he played an all-around better game Dreisaitl yes had more points but McDavid all around was the better player for them does that mean I think McDavid should have been MVP? No, because he wasn't most valuable either. In my mm. opinion, Nathan McKinnon had to be most valuable player because of the amount of success the Avalanche had and because of how much he brought his team. Without Nathan McKinnon, the Avalanche are nothing this season. Cal McCarr uh, could have maybe had a uh, more uh, more certain vote for Rookie of the Year because yeah, he would if, have had if, more if goals. If McKinnon wasn't on the team, then yeah, I'd say Cal McCarr Bec- just would have been more just dominant be- as a rookie. Just, yeah, just because he would have had more opportunities. But overall, Nathan McKinnon, with the amount of injuries that Avalanche had this season and the amount of points he put up and just how ridiculous of a season he had, he has to have won- he has to have won an MVP in my mind. Should Leon Draisaitl have been in the top five? Maybe, I think. Uh, I mean, I... I don't fully agree with the decision that we'd have been out of the top five, but I think he should have been like maybe fourth or fifth because mm-hmm. in my mind, yes, he did have a ridiculous season, but he wasn't most valuable to his team. And that's what the award is. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see with the NHL as well, because it almost goes back and forth between who, like whoever wins uh, the MVP trophy either is the top scorer or uh, like the top point getter rather or the most like the actual most valuable player, and the NHL kind of flips for, back and forth between who like they each vote year for and stuff like that. Between they who, but yeah, like between who, who won the MVP last year? Uh, Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall, who, which was he was, was was he the he, points getter? Like like was he no, the highest? No, he wasn't. Here? He was more valuable to okay. his team. So granted, yeah. granted, he didn't take them very far, but he was the most but then, valuable. But then player. this year, now that now that Leon Draisaitl has won, it's kind of going like it. it yeah. Proves your point exactly where they would exactly. like, avoid for the highest exactly. point getter. And to to, to talk about the question is like should Leon still have been one? Uh, no, hundred percent no. Like Nathan McKinnon deserved that award for all the points that you just made. You could just made all every good point. And for me, this is kind of I'm gonna use this as an analogy. It's like we were talking about this last week. Was LeBron robbed of the MVP? And this point exactly, but it's the opposite now. It's like Nathan McKinnon yeah. is really the Giannis of like the, yeah. in the hockey yeah. world. Like he is on a team that without him would not be as good as where they are. He like the team relies on him very heavily, just like the Bucks do with Giannis. Giannis won the award because that makes sense. And then be, like Bron, like LeBron fans were like, no, LeBron should have won. But it's like LeBron had AD. So Leon Draisaitl really. Is I don't know if he's the LeBron in this situation or the Anthony Davis in this situation or in this analogy that I'm making. Either or, they both have two top star talent on their team yeah. and two star athletes. And really, if you look at it, it like to go, uh, what is it? Um, 
I want to say Anthony Davis or LeBron James could have easily won MVP. Like that's it's similar to this situation. Either whether Leon Dreisaitl or Connor McDavid could have won MVP, and that and that's kind of the analogy that I'm making. That Nathan McKinnon really should have won MVP because yes, he didn't have the score money points, but it's like the same case that we like where I've talked about with other like with other sports fans about like how James Harden was robbed of MVP because you know he averaged like 38 points per game. No, that yeah, he just scored a lot of points, but there should be an award for best offensive player. Other yeah. than that then he really shouldn't be MVP because he's not the most valuable. Like you said, MVP is most valuable to that team, and Nathan McKinnon did that job. He was valuable. He played good offense, played good defense. He probably was on the PK, I'm guessing, as well. Cause mm, he, I think he spent a bit of time there just because of how many injuries they had, but I, I think he he it, definitely spent more point, time than Dreisaitl. He, yeah, he, he spent more time, clearly, on the PK, which is good because he's a good overall player. He probably... I don't know, backtracked a lot. I haven't watched a lot of Nathan McKinnon, but from looking at, we, we've talked about this, because I think it was yeah. a number of months ago, it was a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, we were actually talking about yeah, we were. I doing think our we were. MVP predictions, and we said, this point exactly, Nathan McKinnon should win MVP because of these reasons. Obviously, he didn't, which is disappointing, but that's kind of the analogy that I'm using in between a basketball and hockey analogy. That's my point. The best part about the basketball hockey analogy is that the Bucks and Avalanche had the same result, second round exit. Yeah. <laughs> difference, be- difference between the Oilers and Lakers is the fact that the Lakers actually did something. Yeah. And the Oilers are Nowhere to be seen. Yeah, because they got eliminated by Chicago. Rip. <laughs> maybe, maybe the Nuggets will take out the Lakers, and then we can have this perfect sports analogy figured out. Maybe. 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 Or although, not, the, although the, the Lakers still yeah. got way farther than the Oilers ever will. Yeah, that's that's true <laughs> as well. That's true. Already, this wraps up today's divine debate on should Leon Dreisaitl have one MVP over Nathan McKinnon. Moving on over into our third and final segment of today, it's what were they thinking, and this is a most recent one. Usually we kind of like to talk about the ones in the past, but this is very recent. The Falcons have, like, they blew a 15-point lead in the last five minutes of an NFL to game. To Sam. What? To, who did they lose to, Sam? Oh, they lost to the Cowboys. Yeah. Indeed they did. Yeah. Uh, just point that as well. And they failed to win the onside kick. So, okay, first let's talk about that onside kick pay, play, because the kick was made. The Cowboys obviously were waiting for the the ball to run like they're to pass the ten yards so that they could grab. But the Atlanta Falcons were sitting there like waiting for it to just like magically, unless they were waiting for it to go out of bounds, which I highly doubt. They just didn't jump on it. I was so confused because I was like, why didn't you jump on it? Like you have the chance to win the game. All you have to do is fall on the ball, and you couldn't do that. Yeah, I have no idea. And granted, I think um, I, watching the play, to be completely honest, I think. They, it was from what I had originally heard because I, I honestly turned off the game before the end of it because when you were down, fi- you were down 15 with five yeah. minutes ago, you down thought, 15, eh, down not. 15 with five. I turned it off when they were down 19 points, uh, in I, the first yeah, half there the first because half, it was yeah. that r- ridiculous. But, um, hearing about the play, it was honestly a bit blown out of proportion because I thought what I pictured when I originally heard about the play was they just kind of watched it roll past them and didn't like do anything about it. But I think in this one, it's, it is a tough play and it is a one that they should have made. I, I, a hundred percent agree oh, with that. They should that point. They, they should have made the, play. they should have made the play, but I think it wasn't as bad as people thought because the Cowboys did get on it quickly and like, it was a bit of a scrum, I think. Like it was a very big scrum for the ball. There was like ten players in one spot there trying to wrestle for it. So I think, I think it just was a bit of bad luck. But as well, they should have been on it quicker. They should have had possession sooner, and they should have 
like they should have reacted quicker in a sense because they they did just let it go and i don't know i think i think they might have maybe wanted to let it go out of bounds but it I, ne- that's the only possible explanation i can come up with it is did, because it didn't it, it didn't seem like it was going to though I, that's what i mean because they watched the ball and they watched the ball kick and maybe they thought oh with the weird bounce it's going to bounce out of bounds but the weird thing is that if you look at that play again you can say it if you pause it at like the right moment there's about five Atlanta Falcons kind of circled around the ball like, yeah, so, yeah. sort of around a campfire and there's one cowboy player really close to it kind of like a campfire they're watching the ball they're like the they're on the, yeah they're watching the ball they're just waiting it's like they were waiting for the ball just to ma- like it magically come into their hands or anything like that but i understand like i don't know what their goal is because as the defensive team recovering or i don't know as the team that recovering the kick you don't have to wait for it to come the ball could have been kicked and you could have like and usually with the onside kicks most teams because I've seen onside kicks where it goes up in the air and they try to jump at it. And that's usually where they'll kind of wait in spot. But what doesn't make sense to me is that it was a point that was brought up from other analysts as well that Julio Jones was in the second line. He wasn't in the first line. But usually from the experience that I've played football, usually whenever they're like the team, let's say you're like playing against the team. For whenever we played like, you know, high school football, we always had the receivers line up on an onside kick because they have the best hands. They have the hand steam. That's what that was literally called. Yeah. It was the hand steam. So it was like receivers and tight ends would go up to the front line and they would go get the ball because they would just, you know, obviously when the opposing team is trying to kick the onside kick. So I don't understand why Julio Jones wasn't up there. There was, I believe it was, one of the tight ends was up there. I think that was, that was true. And he kind of just backed away oddly. It was really odd, and I think in that moment, I don't know, and credit to the Cowboys. Credit to the Cowboys 100%. I want to give credit to the Cowboys. Dak Prescott, that was impressive. It coming was, back, it was a, such a great game. Coming back with, like, it was, it was a 15-point lead with less than five minutes. So I saw. They scored two <laughs> touchdowns, and they got, uh, I think, another field goal as well. Two touchdowns and a field goal. I at, saw I saw the stat, stat that was, like, with, when, when they had the 15-point lead with, like, eight minutes left, I think it was 33,330. 33 to 1 odds oh. that the Falcons or the, that the Cowboys would win. It, there was like a 1 in okay, 33,000 okay. chance that mm-hmm. the Cowboys would win. And I think at that time there was like a live sports bet going on because there's so, so many people, different people were people making bets. People or? were making massive bets and somebody put uh 15,000 on the Falcons oh. and ended up winning $10 because of it. <laughs> That's how much money they lost off of that or so, it was something crazy like that. I, it's, there was so many crazy points beca- uh, so many different crazy things from this game because it was such a ridiculous loss and it's crazy to think just what were like the Falcons thinking on that play and obviously this isn't the first time they've done something like this. No, it's it's not the, <laughs> it's not the first time they're used One to blowing most this. Notably in the Super Bowl, but <laughs> And it's interesting because another point that was brought up was they always do this in Texas. They were they played at the Energy yeah, Stadium yeah, yeah. where the Houston Texans play, where they played the Patriots and they blew a twenty eight to three lead. Now they go to uh, Dallas, Big D at the AT and T Stadium and they blow another twenty plus point lead. It was so like twenty twenty. What I'm was, hearing no, is is when the Super Bowl is next hosted in Dallas, Dallas needs to make it to the st- Super Bowl somehow against the Falcons, which I don't even think is possible. Because the Falcons are just so bad. Because the Falcons are so bad and because I don't even think divisions that matches up. But... No, I they doesn't because they're both in the NFC. That wouldn't make sense. But it'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool to see again. But now the next question is, will Dan Quinn be fired before their bye week? Now, their bye week is week 10. So maybe like midseason, basically. Is he mid-season. going to be fired before midseason? Because I think he has to go. In my opinion, okay, if they continue to lose and they continue to look unorganized like they were in this one, then yes. Well, yeah. But if they do make a bet, like say this was just one like bad, bad game, and say they go on to like maybe go, I don't know, what is it? Mm, say they go 
mm, eight games between now and then, or seven yeah, it, games. Yeah, say seven they, games. Say, yeah. They go, say they go three and four. In my opinion, that's a uh, that would put them at three and six going into week ten. Honestly, I think you give them the rest of the season to kind of corral the troops and figure out what they can try to do to either they're going to rebuild or what they're going to do come trade deadline time. But in my opinion, I don't think you fire him during the season. I think you wait until after the season until you've regrouped and figure out what your kind of plan is moving forward because I don't think that would solve anything at that point because clearly in my mind from this game, like you wouldn't fire him specifically after this game because in my mind, that's on the players. The players have to know you have to make that decision. You have to get that ball. In my mind, that's not the coach telling them to just leave it. No, no, I think that's the player's fault. So I don't think you would get rid of the coach immediately on that front. But if they do continue, say they go like one in one in five now, and uh, or one in seven game, one in six from now and then, yeah. then I think you do try to make a decision, but uh, to try to move on from him. But honestly, I think. I think it's a bit overrated to fire a coach midseason because I don't think it changes much. It almost causes more confusion within an organization. I think it's something you have to almost figure out in the offseason. Then you can find your head coach properly, and then you kind of can work towards building a better team for the future rather than just having it like you're uh, if you do it during the season, it's almost like you're taking a disorganized team and making it more disorganized because now that players have to get used to a new coach, they have to try to learn how to play under their play style. And I think that like there is a bit of an effect on that. I mean, usually if a team is firing their head coach midseason, they are playing very well anyways, so they might not be playing for anything for the rest of the season. But in my mind, it makes more sense for me to fire the to wait until after the season to move on from them because then it's much easier to kind of move on and then have a fresh start next season rather than have so much confusion and drama throughout the season of trying to say goodbye to the old coach now bringing in the new and trying to work with them and trying to figure out for the rest of the season i would agree with you to some aspect i don't think that whole loss if they continue to really like do bad and they just lose big games or they they just get blown out and they just like if they lose in close games and they're just you know they're trying their hardest and they're then maybe not but I don't think it's all on Dan Quinn because there's also an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator I don't know exactly how because I know some head coaches do kind of help with the play calling of the offense and the defense some coach I don't know exactly what Dan Quinn's role in the uh, Falcons offense or defense is but if he has some role in the defense there's also a point where the Falcons defense gave up a 15 point lead like all all they had to do was just play defense and the offense just not like just you know just run the ball like you know kill the some offense time had done their part at that point the offense had put up 40 points like 39 points that is nothing on the defense like i mean nothing on the offense the offense if you put 40 points up in a game you're destined to win that's usually you usually, usually you, you are set up to win usually you're set up to yeah. win not in this case clearly because of other reasons but because Cows, the defense the cowboys are great ca- at coming back obviously yeah. honestly i thought you were gonna say the cowboys are great and i was like eh, this isn't up. this isn't even on the falcons anymore it's just because the sheer amazingness of the cowboys and i know they're gonna lose next week because i said this but because of the sheer amazingness of the cowboys that brought it back honestly i think the falcons are fine <laughs> <laughs> No, they're honestly. definitely losing week three. By the way, if I if they lose week three, it's because of I said that. So I'm just putting. That oh, it's there. oh, it's not because the Seattle Seahawks are the better team and they. Oh got wait, we play, we play Seattle yeah, this week. Yeah, this week. Oh yeah, Sunday in oh, Seattle, no. four thirty. Be ready. Be well, ready to. I can see what's going to be talked about on the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly, I honestly think that it's more on the offensive coordinator and the defense. Like, the offensive coordinator did good, but I think the defensive coordinator clearly struggled. I think really both coordinators struggled because you have a 15-point lead, and you have five minutes, and you easily could have got the ball back, 
and you could have just ran out the clock. Like, you would, let's say, they probably, like, after the Dallas had scored the one touch, it was like 39, 39-31, I think. So, at that point, you get the ball back. It's not like you gave up multiple onside kicks. It was not multiple. It was, like, it was just one onside kick. But you have the ball, just run out the clock. Just yeah. run out the clock. Yeah. And, and obviously, they're no most notably for not running the ball in Super Bowl 53. Yes. So, this issue brings up again, clearly they did not learn from their mistake of running the ball or just passing it and killing clock. Now, my question is to you, because you might know this better than me. Was Dan Quinn the same coach that ha- was a part of that Super Bowl team, or is he a different coach? Because that's one thing I am not 100% sure about. See, I don't... I think, no, I think Dan Quinn... Because if he was their coach at that time... No, he was. Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. That's who I'm thinking. Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. He was the offensive mastermind coordinator that led them to that amazing year in 2016. Dan Quinn was that coach, but Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. So so he was the head coach that part of the team. Then why hasn't he been fired sooner is my new question because I don't know, clearly because, they because have a so problem. Many people have, so many have pointed out the fact that they just haven't been the same. And I totally agree. After blowing that 25-point lead in the Super Bowl, oh, yeah. you just lose all hope. Like, if you lose mm-hmm. that big, like, Confidence your team, is shot. Your confidence is shot for a while. Like, there's no rebounding. Like, you know, like you have some better years here and there, but they're just not the same team. If they Gotta feel that, bad for the QB, though. Yeah. Gotta feel bad for them. Matt Ryan. Like, Gotta feel on, bad for Matt Ryan. Gotta, like, he put up 39 points with the offense, and he lost the game on a on a special teams technicality and the blowing of the defense as well. Like of the defense not mm-hmm. doing their job mm-hmm. and allowing the Cowboys to come back as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, we'll probably be talking about the Seahawks and Cowboys game on the yes, next we episode. Will. We we'll definitely, be, we'll will definitely be. be doing a game preview of that. This wraps up this segment of what were they thinking regarding the Falcons blowing a 15-point lead in the last five minutes and failing to win the onside kick. That wraps up this episode of Season 2 of the On the Rise Podcast. You should follow our Instagram at Rise Podcast. Listen in on midtownradio.ca and visit our website on the risepodcast.ca. We will see you on Saturday.